Well, if you turn your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll ask the Lord to cultivate and prepare our hearts for responding in the Lord's Supper. First Thessalonians chapter 1. John Bunyan, you're familiar with him from the Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote another work, an allegorical work titled Mansoul. It is a city enforced with castle walls around it to protect it from its enemies. It's actually representative of um, the Christian life. It could actually be representative of a, a Christian his body as the man soul or city, but also representative of the collective whole of believers. So Bunyan portrays, this is the city man soul. Now there's an enemy that man soul is responsible to protect its city from. The enemy is Diabolus. His goal is to penetrate man soul and to turn it against the Lord. That would be Jesus Christ. Now, Mansoul is well aware of Diabolus' ploys, his tactics, and so they're looking out at the ear gate and the eye gate, obviously representative of the human body here. They're looking out for his evil workers, for lasciviousness, anger, and covetousness. They, they would be easily identified and counterattacked. But Diabolus had a ploy to rename these individuals. And so he makes these same men more acceptable by giving a spiritual, biblical twist, if you will, on their evil natures to make them more acceptable. And so he named covetous, prudent, thrifty, anger, good zeal, lasciviousness, harmless mirth. These men are sent to the eye gate and the ear gate to infest the heart of the city with Diabolus's wicked contortions and ploys. And the city eventually falls to the evil prince's ploys, and he must be rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does so through the jailer, Mr. Truman, who catches these deceivers, exposes them, and frees the city. Our American culture has been saturated for about 300 years with Christian verbiage because of the church's influence, no doubt. And if you listen carefully, whether it's through sports or movies, you're going to hear phrases like redeem oneself or uh, you need to tone for your mistake or tone for their mistakes or even you should give grace. And as Christians, when we come across that, we often want to retort. I, you keep using that word. I, I don't think it means what you think it means. These words have been gutted of their rich theology and replaced with a, a watered down and should we say poisonous, a poisonous anthropological, what does that mean? Man-centered, a man-centered meaning. So in, in Christian doctrine, grace isn't this tolerance of failure and sin, but rather grace is God's provision to fulfill the penalty and requirement of the law regarding sin. And thereby, by fulfilling the law and its penalty and requirement, thereby he provides God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, I did that on purpose. Grace, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. It's probably the first time we ran across that little fascinating, fun acronym. But I've injected it now with its proper content. God's riches at Christ's expense. 
is the provision of a satisfied law and its requirement for those who receive his provision. So in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to look at God's verbiage of grace and faith, as well as the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel. I want to show you, first of all, how important this is to salvation and then to sanctification in the context of 1 Thessalonians. Now, oftentimes when you start a book, you would do a background and I would tell you how evil and um, licentious that uh, the Thessalonians were, that the Greek city was horrible. But what we're going to do is actually use the book itself to set up the background and then move right into chapter one. So first of all, the importance of the word of God to salvation. This is important. In chapter two, verse 13, we get some of the background. It's vital to understand this book. First Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So they received the word of God, the proclamation of God. It's not the word of men, even though the apostles and prophets and teachers are bringing it. It is the word of God, the revelation of God, his truth, his proclamation. And because it's the word of God and you accepted it, you apprised it as for what it genuinely is, the word of God, it does a work in you believers, he says, right? It's powerful because it's God's word. It's the word of God that brought life and light when he said, let there be light. It's the word of God that brings life and light to the soul out of deadness. Now, the threat is found in verse 16. There are those who do not want the word of God going forth. And their goal and intention in verse 16, Paul says, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. That, that's, that's the goal of threats, false teachers to the word of God. They want to hinder it. They'd rather bring the word of men. They want to hinder salvation. The word of men thwarts the salvation of sinners. And so Paul begins his letters here, this letter to the Thessalonians in this first letter, to remind them of the power of God's grace in salvation. But there's also another attack, and the attack isn't just on salvation, it's also on sanctification. And in chapter 4, we see his emphasis on sanctification in chapter 4, verse 1. And again, it's, it's, the frame of this is God's grace. And we're going to see that in chapter one. It's God's grace and provision through Christ that brings salvation, but it's also his grace in the word of God that sanctifies. We can call one saving grace and this sanctifying grace. It's, we can call it sanctifying grace versus saving grace because of our relationship to Christ. Outside of Christ, we're dead in trespasses and sins. By faith, we grab onto Christ. We receive Christ would be a better way to explain it. We receive Christ by faith. We're saved. So it's his grace that saves us. We're declared right with God through faith. And as we're connected to Christ by faith, like a branch to the vine, that grace sanctifies. It's still the personal work of Jesus Christ. It sanctifies us. It brings life and growth. Uh, just so you see, before we look at chapter 4 on sanctification, drop down to 528, chapter 528, and notice grace again. The grace, 1 Thessalonians 5:28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it belongs to him, be with you. Paul does this many times. He'll start a book with grace to you, and then he closes the book with grace be with you. 
because it's the word of God from Christ that graces us to save if we're outside of Christ, brought into Christ, and to sanctify those who are in Christ by faith. So sanctification. Let's look at how God's grace affects our sanctification. Chapter four, verse one. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you. I love this. We could just do a whole lesson on this. Urge you in the Lord Jesus. So it's in your relationship with Christ that Paul asks and urges. So the motivation is found in union with Jesus Christ. It's because of Christ. It's in Christ. That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So because we're in Christ, there's a a walk, an offering of worship and praise that God is pleased with because we're in Christ. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So we're, we're urged in the Lord Jesus. And these instructions come through the Lord Jesus. These are, this is the word of God, not the word of men. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. We're, we're set apart to him. We're united with him. So we belong to him. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So this grace that sanctifies, teaches us the will of God. We know his will. Teaches us and empowers us to control the body in holiness and honor, verse 4. Not in lustful passions like those who don't know God, because we know him in Christ. And what, what does it do when we, we don't control our body and it's given over to lust and passion? Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. It affects others because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. I look at verse 9 too. I love this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So we're God taught, God discipled in his grace. So this grace is a grace that when we're united with Christ, saves us. And the word of men tries to thwart that. And this grace, because we're in Christ, sanctifies us in our union with Jesus Christ. Because we're taught of God. We're taught of his will. And that knowledge and the power of God's grace in Christ sanctifies our lives. So let's look at this power source, if you will. We want to look at grace. We want to look at faith in Christ. And we want to look at the power of the Holy Spirit. So take us back to chapter 1. If you turn there, look at three manifestations of the power of the gospel. Three manifestations of the power of the gospel that's accomplished by the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you're going to see the Father and the Son and the Spirit's involvement in all of this. First manifestation of the power of the gospel is the the grace of God, the grace of God. We don't have to go very far. We can just look at verse one, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So this grace that comes to them and peace is found in union with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where grace is operative, in union with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the church, the assembly, the body that's united with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that experiences God's grace. So it is our position in Christ, in the Father, that we experience this grace. Now, is this grace some kind of mystical 
Meditation, what is this? Well, 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5 gives us the, the heartbeat of this grace. I think it's worth looking at here. It's actually the center of chapter 1. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. Notice the personification here. It's because we're going to see it's the Holy Spirit's ministry through the bearers, the proclaimers of the gospel. So it's as if the gospel is coming like a person to you, not only in word, which is true. It's coming in proclamation, but also in power. It's effectual. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So the gospel comes as if it's personal because of the power of the Holy Spirit and through approved men, namely Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So the, the power of this grace isn't, isn't me. It's actually the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the proclamation of the word of God that produces conviction. A little bit about this grace. I think we can draw from, from this text. I'm going to draw a little bit from grace to you and peace and in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wanna, this is some amazing fruit. So we've eaten around it and we're just going to suck this thing as dry as we can. So notice, first of all, this grace, it, it does come from God. And so we could call it a rule of grace. It's a rule of grace. We notice in chapter 5, verse 28, that it's the grace that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from him. He's the source. But we definitely see that here in verse 1. It's to the church who is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that context, grace to you and peace comes. So it comes from God. The New Testament loves this idea of grace to you and peace. 17 books of the New Testament begin with grace and peace or grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all over the place. Now, why is this grace from God? Why would we call it a ruling grace? It, it, right, it, it produces salvation and it sanctifies. Well, it's because it, it's a divine grace. And again, I don't mean substance. I mean, it's in the, if I could use hand metaphorically here, in the hand of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, that we experience His grace. In other words, grace is God's provision, God's work on our behalf in Christ. That's why it's a, a divine grace. Notice again in verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father. And notice, so we have Theos used of, of the Father. He's God. He's the owner. He's the possessor. He's the creator. And the Lord, Kyrios, often Lord is used in the New Testament to take the title Yahweh of the Old Testament and apply it right over to Jesus. And you find that because Paul will be quoting from Isaiah where it refers to Yahweh and then brings that right over and replaces Yahweh with Lord. So it is a divine title. In other words, the Father is God and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God. And together, the church is united with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is a divine grace because of the work of God. It's a divine grace. It's a ruling grace. It's a sovereign grace. It's a sovereign grace. Look at the phrase there. The end of verse 1, grace to you and peace. So it rules. It's divine. It's sovereign. Notice grace to you. It's external. 
It's a grace that comes unto the person from without. Grace to you. It engages its object. It doesn't hover. It's not neutral. It's not a bucket there that we're just grabbing to apply to ourselves. It actually engages, right? Grace to you. So it comes from without. It engages. And therefore, it's independent. It's not dependent upon man. No qualifications are given that compel, move, or motivate this grace. It's undeniable. It's not affected by man. It's not moved upon by man. It superintends upon the man apart from the will of man or the behavior of man. And it's God glorifying. You see this in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. It's fascinating this term, give thanks. This whole book is an outflow of thanks because of God's sovereign grace, because of his sovereign rule, his sovereign provision. The, the Greek word for thanksgiving is eucharisteo. So you is good, charis, good grace or well-favored. The word for grace is charis. We use that often to name our daughters, charis. So God's grace is charis, a gift. And it produces thanksgiving, well-favored, good-graced, eucharisteo, or eucharist. So this whole book is flowing out of the thanksgiving of Paul for the grace of God in Christ. How might we summarize this grace? Why don't you turn to John 1.14? John 1, 14. It's just good to feast your eyes on this. And the word became flesh. To enflesh. Incarnate, to enflesh. Carnate in. He's fleshed. And dwelt, tabernacled among us. To condescend. Think of the pictures of the tabernacle and temple. God with us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. It's in himself, in Christ, being enfleshed, incarnate, dwelling among us that we have seen his glory. This is God's provision of grace. It comes from God. It's divine. It's a ruling grace. But it also comes in union. It provides union with God, a unity with God. And we see that in the statement, grace to you and peace. Notice again in verse one, in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it secures unity in relationship with the father and the son. How beautiful is that? These are God's riches and provisions in the person of Christ. We have all of God's resources at our disposal for his glory. We can say God's righteousness is my righteousness. God's joy is my joy. God's life is my life. God's glory is my glory. And how can we say that? Because we're in Christ. Jeremiah Burrow in the, his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says 
The good of my life and comforts and my happiness and my glory and my riches are more in God than in myself. If God has glory, I have glory. God's glory is my glory, and therefore God's will is mine. If God has riches, then I have riches. If God is magnified, then I am magnified. If God is satisfied, then I am satisfied. God's wisdom and holiness is mine. How beautiful. I think this is what gets us. We fall into the trap of looking at our own resources for the Christian life. So we become anxious and weighed down. The suffering kicks us when we're down. And we forget that when we feel the guilt and shame that Christ is our righteousness, that he's clothed us in the righteousness which is his. Philippians 3, Paul reminds us that it's not by our works, but that righteousness is in Christ. It's seated in the heavens. Pictures that have been used by the reformers is that we're dressed in his righteousness. Dressed in his garments, dressed in his clothes. It belongs to him. Remember seeing a picture uh, of a quote with alien righteousness written across it. And John Calvin is touching the fingers of E.T. It's alien righteousness that's outside of us. It belongs to him. We're clothed in it. So it's meant to comfort us in the midst of our suffering, to remember that he suffered with us, but he's been exalted and he's raised at the right hand of God and that's our position in him. And he's using the suffering to sanctify and to grow, to stamp his image in our lives. He says, grace to you in peace. This grace that brings us to God, that avails the center of God's provision and promises in Christ Jesus, brings peace with it. Because we're, we're brought to an ultimate reconciliation with God. Even though we're suffering in this life and going through difficulty, the ultimate, the grand scheme of enmity with God has been resolved. We're at peace with God. So grace brings peace so that when grace comes into our lives, peace follows. Peace enters no house that grace has not first entered. Grace makes peace. Grace signs the peace treaty between God and man by securing God's power and presence in behalf of the one at enmity with God. How does that encourage us? Maybe stop for a moment and give a little commercial break. Sometimes we need those. I remember times where my wife and I would go on vacation when our kids got a little older and could manage the house, probably between 14 and 17 years old. And we wouldn't say, oh, you know, you work at Chick-fil-A, so your $50 that you have in your bank account, that should be manageable. You just use your debit card. Anything happens, just, yeah, let us know, but you're okay. You got it. That would be overwhelming, especially with some of the things that would happen while we were gone, like plumbing breaking, you know, and water's filling the bathroom, and you're taking a sled trying to get the, the water out, one of those plastic sleds, and get it out of there. You see, what we would say is, no, just let us know. There's people in the church body you can call. Uh, here's where the checkbook is. Here's a, a card. Here's, here's some cash. Here's some resources. And so in the midst of this struggle of difficulty, at the same time, there's the promise of provision. And the same thing in this cursed life, we go through suffering and affliction that God works in our lives as his children to grow us and train us. And impress the image of Christ in us and on us in the midst of our affliction. But we have these secure promises 
<laughs> I remember, I, I did ask my wife for permission for this. I wasn't going to share this with the second service that's recorded, but I am now. It's just one of those moments, right? So I get this phone call. I have two dogs. My kids are going right now. What in the world? You're not going to do this. I am. I have two dogs, right? Two shepherds. And they give me a call. So you won't believe this. They caught this squirrel. One grabbed one end. One grabbed the other end and tore it. And then the other one ran into the house. And the thing's bleeding. And they're running down the stairs. And so my kids are saying, we got to clean up this blood all over the carpet. That's havoc. That's craziness. But you have the resources, right? It's the assurance. It's okay. Mom and dad are coming back. We can, we can take care of this. Maybe can't rent, rent the cleaner right now, but we'll just make it manageable, right? And Paul is describing the affliction of the sufferers the Thessalonians are going through, and he's reminding them that they have not only God's gracious provision, all these blessings in Christ to meet their need, we feel guilty, we feel shamed, and we're being accused. Christ is my righteousness. It's this garment, this robe that's outside of me. It's alien. I can cling to that. When we're losing loved ones, to know that I have a family that's secured. When our home's falling apart, I have an eternal home in heaven. When my life's failing me, Christ is my life, and he's going to usher me into his heavenly home. These, these are promises that we grab onto in the midst of our suffering, to bring, to console our hearts, to bring comfort to our hearts. Yes, there's lack of peace in the midst of this chaos going on. They're running there, running there. What do we do? But it's the rest of provision. And we're in a home. It's provided for us. We have meals. It's provided for us. Can reach mom and dad on the phone. There's help, right? In the same way, we draw from one another, resting ultimately in the provision of God in Christ. So God graces us comes from him it's divine it it rules saves it sanctifies how does it do all that not because some mystical force but because it's the ministry of the holy spirit through the word of god but secondly if you see if you're outside of christ you have no access to this grace this grace is in god the father and the lord jesus christ and so you, you need to embrace christ you need to receive him and that's our second point The second manifestation of the power of the gospel, first is the grace of God, and he's underlined even the deity of Christ in this, but also faith in Christ. And look with me at verse 3. Remember, the whole thing is falling out of thanks, right? Eucharist, good thanks, because of God's good grace. This whole life becomes this testimony of thanks. And he says in verse 3, remembering before our God and Father in the presence of God. What What a thing to say, in the presence of God. We remember your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy for us. The law is written on our hearts. So we're all about do, do, do. Get me the work. Tell me what to do. Give me the list. And it's easy to look at verse three and go work, labor, steadfastness. Let's, let's, let's jam. Let's get to it. Give me the list. Let's go. Well, we forget that work belongs to faith and labor belongs to love and steadfastness belongs to hope. It's the faith that generates the fruit of work, this energy. Labor or is, is, is grounded in love. It flows out of love. And steadfastness is grounded in hope. So let's get our little triad out there. Let's put up our signs. Faith, hope, and love. And remember, faith, hope, and love. Well, wait a minute. We forgot something. What does he say there? Faith, hope, and love. Just remember faith, hope, and love. And then you're going to work and labor and be steadfast. No, he says... In our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. This is the source and the ground of faith. And from this resting in Christ, this faith in Christ, this 
empty hand, as uh, many of our Reformed brothers referred to as a, a beggar. Herman Witsius describes faith as like a, a beggar who doesn't even have the strength to raise up his hands in a token of neediness. And so the rich person comes along in their carriage at that time with the horse and buggy and stops in there and raises the hand of the beggar and opens the hand of the beggar and places his riches into it. And Herman Witsius says no one would ever think to give credit to the beggar because of his open hands, because of his empty hands, because he's raised his arms. No, it's the one with the, it's the benefactor. It's the one with the resources that is the rich provision of the beggar. And this is what faith is. It's, it's receiving Christ. You could read this faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ who's the anchor for faith. It's Christ who's the benefactor. Christ who's the provider. And then faith rooted in Christ. Well, it, it works. It produces love that labors and hope that is steadfast. Now, the best example is Christ's own testimony in John 15 of the vine. Here's this branch. It's dead. It's on the ground, right? Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sins. God takes that branch. Here's the vine. The life of Christ is pulsating through it, attaches that dead branch, binds it to the, to the vine. That bond, the reformers called faith. It's, it's accomplished by the Spirit of God, the union there. And faith is the te- a testimony of receiving. It's receiving that life of the vine. And as we work through, uh, we've talked about saving grace and sanctifying grace. We can talk about saving faith and sanctifying faith. The faith that receives that bond in Christ is immediately declared right with God because we have Christ. We're saved. We're in Jesus and now that pulsating life of the Spirit begins to work through us and it produces fruit. It's not us producing fruit. It's the life of Christ received by faith. It's in our Lord Jesus Christ that this faith is grounded. It receives the, the, the benefactor Christ and the Spirit of God works through Christ Jesus to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our lives so that faith produces the fruit of work and we love and delight in him. So that produces uh, loving labor and hopeful steadfastness. So what do I draw from this? Faith, hope, love. No, what I'm drawing from this is grab onto the gospel, come here intentionally to hear the gospel, preach the gospel to our own hearts as we're in the word of God, be looking for the good news of the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Christ, because it's that that has the power by the Holy Spirit to, to grow our faith in Christ, to produce faith that works its way out in love, not because of our faith, but because Christ is the vine, so that love empowers labor and hope in Christ produces steadfastness. I can endure the affliction because Christ is all that I need. He's everything. So we run to Christ. We take his word and we preach the promises to our hearts, even when our hearts sometimes don't believe it, right? I believe, but how my unbelief? And we ask the Lord, Lord, I, I need your sanctifying grace through the ministry of the gospel to remind me of Christ so that my faith grows. Because I'm having a hard time laboring and providing energy in ministry. I'm burnt out and I'm bitter. And I'm just struggling with my attitude of grumbling and complaining. Show me Christ again through your word. And ignite that faith that bears the fruit of love and hope that bears the fruit of steadfastness and labor and work, which is because of Christ, not because of me. 
So this gospel produces this saving faith. And this saving faith, then because we're clasping in Christ, that's where the saving faith is even in, is in Christ Jesus. There's a sanctifying fruitfulness and love that labors and hope that remains steadfast. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8 says of this love, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We don't see him, we love him. Why do we love him? We believe in him and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I love this because he gives us the secret to assurance and confidence, which are one of the testaments of justification. To understand justification, assurance is one of the great benefits of understanding our justification. And I point you to verses 4 and 5 for this. This is great encouragement. He says in verse 4, For we know, right, because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, for we know, okay, that's confidence, that's assurance. Brothers, loved by God. That takes us back to Ephesians 1, of God's loving choice in Christ. Loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do I know? Know that I'm loved by God and that he's chosen me. Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, it came in proclamation. It's a, it's a good news, the proclamation. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. William Perkins, great reformer, following Calvin later, wrote, a book called The Golden Chain in light of Romans 8. And what he says is, how do we know? He asks the question, how do we know that we're chosen and loved by God? He says, well, we're chosen by God. That's, that's a chain. He's using Romans 8 as these links, the benefits of salvation. Here's this chain that begins in eternity past. And I can't see that. I can't experience that. It's between the Father and Son. But in light of that promise, that Covenant contract between father and son to save an elect, to save his own. He has promised glory. So if eternity future, glory. So here are these things I can't see. I can't see eternity past, father and son's counsel. I can't see eternity future. And again, we're using timeline of history here analogically to describe because God is not on the time that we're on, but we talk about eternity past in our frame of reference. I can't see before the creation of the world and I can't see in the new creation. But there's this chain that is linked up and it comes down into our time and space in the ministry of the gospel. It comes down in the the proclamation of the word of Christ that Christ is a great savior who makes satisfaction for sins that fulfills the law of God. And the Holy Spirit comes as we hear the word of God and convicts us of sin, right? Full conviction. And gives us the the faith as a gift, Ephesians 2, to trust in this word of power because of the Holy Spirit. And so William Perkins said it's pulling on the middle links that are, that drop down into time and space. The word of promise to us, I believe in Christ. Ah, I've convicted over my sin and see my need for Christ. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we're tugging on it and it's pulling on loved by God and chosen by him and pulling on the other end the surety of his, his promise for the future in Christ, the hope that produces steadfastness. I think Paul has done a more simple job of grabbing that. He's not talking about these golden chains, but rather that we can know. We can know we're loved by God. We can know that we're chosen because of the effects of the gospel. 
because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is how we know. Now, apart from Christ, outside of Christ, there's no, there's no confidence. It's only in receiving Christ that there is confidence. Uh, the puffer fish has been fascinating to me to think about. It describes the way the fish puffs up when frightened. For centuries, its meat has been a delicacy in China and Japan. There are over 120 species of puffer fish worldwide. 22 species are allowed to be eaten in Japan. And China now only allows two species of farm-raised, non-toxic puffer fish to be eaten. A puffer fish contains enough toxin to kill 30 adult humans, and there is no known antidote. Only a licensed chef has the approval to prepare the puffer fish for consumption. The toxic parts are contained in the fish's vital organs. The main toxic area is the liver, and then the heart, eyes, brain, guts, they're all toxic. And I think, well, who'd want to eat those anyway? At least my Western mind doesn't gravitate towards that. But you, you think of the blood that's permeating through this. It's affecting even the meat. So it requires a licensed hand. Even with farm-raised puffer fish, only a specialized chef has been given the license to prepare it because a wild puffer fish can make its way into that school unbeknownst to them. Now, it's funny. I, I shared this illustration in the first service and the, right afterwards I had a friend that came up to me and said, I've done it three times or had three servings. And they said, hey, if it's not prepared right, you're dead. <laughs> then who would do that? <laughs> I don't know. Where are we going with this? If you try to come to God's grace... If you try to come to the law of God apart from Jesus Christ, it's lethal. The law of God has no mercy. It judges. It condemns. It requires perfect, perpetual, righteous law keeping. But in Christ, he's the licensed chef. He has prepared it. He's fulfilled the law, its demands. And in Christ, he secures us. So as others have said before, in one hand, Christ takes the law of God, fulfills its demand, fulfills its, its righteous requirement, satisfies it, takes the penalty for those who trust in him. And in the other hand, by faith, because of his grace, he gives the benefits, the benefits of his law work to us in grace. The Heidelberg Catechism says it, asks it very profoundly and answers it very profoundly. In, uh, question in answer 12 on the Lord's Day 5, it asks this, a question, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? Answer, God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of his justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Question, can we make this payment ourselves? Answer, certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Question, can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? Answer, no. No mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Question. Well, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? Answer. One who is a true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. Question. Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous human? Answer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is given to us to completely deliver us and make us right with God. Grace, faith in Christ. And lastly, the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. And we've seen that he works through the proclamation of the word of God to bring full conviction. 
But I want you to notice this power, how it operates in our sanctification. We've seen already that it produces life, produces faith. Uh, The the grace of God becomes operative through the ministry of the gospel because of the, the Holy Spirit. But we also see that there is a sanctifying grace because of the power of the Spirit. And if I could just outline a threefold benefit of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. First of all, and we'll look at it, but I want to give it to you as a little preview. The Spirit-empowered gospel stamps, stamps our life with the image of Christ in the midst of affliction. It's in that hardship. He stamps us with Christ. Secondly, the Spirit-empowered gospel causes us to sound forth Christ. And then finally, to serve Christ. And let's just look at it briefly. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us. You mimicked us and of the Lord. For you received the word, that word of God, in much affliction. You think of how the refiner's fire works with silver and gold. So in the midst of this affliction, maybe it's better to talk about the branding. The heat of branding. Well, he brands us. This idea of example in verse 7. So that you became an example. The word there is type. And if you remember the old typewriters, I know it's all kind of encased and hidden from us in the copiers now. But you think the old typewriters, they would imprint the image, the letter on that piece of paper. He imprints, he types is the word. In the midst of affliction. There's an external affliction. That's the context. But there's an internal Verse 6, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's this secret joy and contentment in the midst of our affliction that comes from resting in Jesus Christ that produces a faith that bears the fruit of working, love that labors, and hope that is steadfast. Verse 8, not only does he stamp and press the image of Christ in our life with the external of affliction and the internal joy of the Spirit, But he also sounds forth. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The idea of sounding forth, some have noticed, it's like a a thunderclap that echoes. I told Barry, you should have something in the background that goes off. Ba-boom! He said, yes. I didn't get, we didn't get to it, did we? Sounding forth. This lightning, this thunder that sounds forth. Now, I want to remind you that it's all in the context of thanksgiving. Remember Eucharist? Eucharisteo? He's giving thanks. Think of the word for gospel. Euangelion. We get angelos as the word for angel or messenger. And the the little prefix you, the good message. So we've talked about the good grace. That would be well-favored, thanksgiving. We've been graced, so we respond in thanksgiving because if he's, he's, he's been, had, we've received his good grace. But the gospel is very, is built around this good news. And if I could encourage you, oftentimes in evangelism, we love to take the John the Baptist approach of under the old covenant, a prophet, a lawyer figure, judgment to the world. God hates everyone's stinking guts, trust in Jesus mentality. I'm not saying there aren't times where we're on a plane and I imagine myself having to say some things because it's going down. And I'm like, well, then why wouldn't I do that anyway? Hey, y'all, listen. Are there times for that? Certainly. We don't want to lose that aspect of God is a judge. We're under his law. We're condemned. Run to him. 
We definitely want to proclaim the law. It's in Christ's hand and we've given grace in the other. But the flavor here, the flavor of this sounding forth is this idea of good news. It's framed by thanksgiving. And so it may go something like this. Let me boast in the Christ who saved me from my sins. And he can save you too. He's a great savior. This is good news. We rest in him. We look to him by faith. He's done the entire work. Trust in him. Yes, he's a judge and the law condemns. But I want to give thanks. I want to proclaim the goodness of Christ to me and I want to offer him to you. That's the flavor of this sounding forth that's echoing across the land, everywhere they've gone. And then 9 and 10, we see the service. Ministry of the Holy Spirit and sanctifying grace. For Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. So think of these idols as this these dead representations of demons, as Paul says, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 8. They're dead and they, they're these dead representations and they literally have to be carried about by the works of men and propped up by men. Isaiah makes a mockery of it. And instead we've turned from those to serve. Think of a service of thanksgiving. It gives us the flavor of First Thessalonians 1, it's remembering, it's a service of grace, a response of grace and thanksgiving. We serve the living and true God, not propping him up, not trying to protect him. He's done the work in Christ. And verse 10, notice the resting, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're longing for him. We wait for him. We're resting in our looking forward to Christ's return. And all these things are made ours by the grace of God in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the gospel. Why would we want to get in the way of that? We just laid before unbelievers the banquet of Jesus Christ through our own personal lives of thanksgiving. And we realize we need the same banquet in our own hearts. Well, the Lord Jesus has given us the Lord's Supper. If you look with me at Luke 22, I think this would be a wonderful response. You're going to see this emphasis of thanksgiving and remembrance framed in a taste of the heavenly banquet to come. He's given to us in this new covenant cup and bread. So just to frame some time, I'm going to give you a little, a little time to, to pray and just remember Christ and what he's done for you. But just to frame your thoughts, in verse 14, Luke 22, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Passover connects back to the Old Testament exodus and redemption, reminds us of the unity of redemption in all of Scripture. It's this Passover with you. Reminded of 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where Paul says that Christ is the Passover lamb. We see the unity of the kingdom. Christ has brought the new covenant message of the kingdom. It says in verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's looking forward. This is the hope. In verse 17, he took a cup and Here's our word for thanks. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Notice this giving, fruit, take, receive, until the kingdom of God comes, our hope. Verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. It's a gift. This is my body, which is given for you. Substitution, gift, grace. Do this in remembrance of me. So it's the remembrance that drives even the fruit of responding in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to give you some time to meditate on Christ before we take in the, the bread and the cup. Lord, we conclude with this amazing hymn that encourages our hearts and may bring this service to a close with great joy. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness. What a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Thank you, Lord, for your provision in Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace and peace be with you. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.